Hi, I'm Rachel, and you're listening to the Tipsy Traveler podcast, where we talk about cocktails, travel stories, and how-tos. Let's get started. Hi, and welcome to the third episode of the Tipsy Traveler podcast. Today, I'm going to be talking about Antarctica, which I know has been kind of one of those things that everyone wants me to talk about. So this might be the first time, at least on a public forum, that I am. I know that I shared one Facebook post back when I went, but I haven't really been able to express the full scope of how this happened and also what happened while I was there. It's just been a lot, and honestly, there are a lot of emotions tied up in it because it was my seventh continent and because I had been striving for this for so long that once I reached it, I kind of started to get a little sad. It just had been something that I had worked for for so long and then I did it and then it was kind of like, well, what's next? What do I do now? Do I try and go to space? (laughs) Because honestly, that seemed like the next best thing. I couldn't really think of anywhere else to go. (laughs) That's ridiculous because obviously I haven't even been to every country, so there's still plenty of places I have left to explore. But at the time, it was just kind of a big milestone and it felt sad accomplishing it in a way because I had been working toward it and it had been in the forefront of my mind for so long and then it was no longer there because it was done. That being said, this was obviously the trip of a lifetime and it's going to take me a while to dive into all of the different things that happened and everything that we were able to do while we were there. I'm going to start with today day just talking about the first few steps along the process, which would be getting there, being in Argentina the first couple days before we left and prepping, as well as getting on the boat and starting the journey down through the Drake Passage, which will definitely be interesting for those of you who have never looked into going to Antarctica because the Drake Passage is a creature in and of itself. But first, as always, we're going to start with the cocktail of the week. So this week, we have a cocktail called the Mexican Iceberg, which I did not name. We found this one online, and if I'm being honest, it looks a lot cooler than it tasted. We tried it out, and it definitely did look like an iceberg because the drink was so blue and there was something floating in it. However, it's tasted like straight tequila, which isn't horrible, but it's not what you want to sip on for like an entire cocktail, especially if you're expecting it to be sweet. I did find that once the float, the ice cream that we put in it, started to melt and you could kind of mix it all up, it did taste a little bit better, so that might be something to think about. But essentially what this drink is, is two ounces of tequila, an ounce of blue carousel, an ounce of triple sec, or any kind of orange liqueur that you might have on hand, and then you mix it in a blender with ice, so it's kind of an already icy mixed drink. And then you add a scoop of lime sherbet. Having said that, we used lime and it was delicious, but you could definitely use like lemon ice cream. You could probably even use vanilla or orange sherbet if you weren't so concerned about it looking like a real iceberg. Any kind of ice cream or sherbet I think would do you just fine. So if you don't have lime sherbet on hand, don't worry. I think it would be good with any of them. Not my favorite drink. (laughs) Definitely more for the looks. Definitely cooler to look at than it was to drink. So let's talk Antarctica. So first of all, I think the biggest thing that you should know is that I didn't do a ton of the logistical planning as far as the boat trip. As I mentioned in a previous episode, I think it was the How I Made It to All Seven Continents episode, I found a group of women online who were going to Antarctica and essentially they bought the tickets and I paid 
them. So while I didn't do any of the research as far as price shopping or comparing different cruise lines that went down to Antarctica, I just kind of stumbled upon one that I thought would be a good fit for me and hopped on it. Didn't really think much about comparing. I did have to figure out all of the logistics to get down there and obviously to get home. So essentially the boat leaves from the very tip of Argentina and from what I've heard there are also some that leave from the very bottom of South Africa and New Zealand as well. But this one left from a town called Ushuaia. I think I'm pronouncing that correctly. That's how I've been pronouncing it now for like three years. So if I'm wrong, don't correct me because you'll have ruined so much of my life. I'm just kidding. But Ushuaia is a tiny little town on the very tip of Argentina. And honestly, from what I understood of their tourist community, no one really goes there unless they're looking to go to Antarctica. Really, once you're there, there are hostels named Antarctica. There are a lot of restaurants and a lot of gear shops centered around the Antarctica theme. So it was a very interesting little town. But I flew down from Seattle and actually the way it worked for me was I found a really cheap flight from Vancouver, BC. So that's about a three hour drive for me. And I decided that, you know what, that was going to be the best option. So like 9pm the night before my flight, I hopped on a bus to Vancouver, spent the night in the Vancouver airport because that is something I do fairly regularly. From there, I flew to Houston. I think I had like a normal like two or three hour layover there. And then down to Buenos Aires, I had maybe an eight or nine hour layover in Buenos Aires, but I had to switch airports. So a lot of that day looked like trying to get an Uber from one airport to the next airport, which you might think like, oh, that's not that hard. But unfortunately, Uber is illegal in Argentina, or at least it was at that time. I don't know where it currently stands. So I would call an Uber and there's a very typical scam where if you call an Uber and they don't want to take your ride, they'll just text you or they'll message you on the app and say like, hey, sorry, I can't take you. And they'll make you cancel or ask you to cancel. At that point, you will pay a cancellation fee because there's really no reason for them not to take your ride other than the fact that they don't want to. And then they get paid a small portion of that cancellation fee, even though they didn't do anything. So I had heard about the scam and I didn't know obviously if it was reliable or not, but I didn't want to take the risk of it being potentially real. So my game plan was I had around eight hours to get from one airport on one side of town to the other airport on the other side of town. And I decided to leave immediately, call an Uber. And then if they asked me to cancel, just say no and wait them out because I had eight hours. I was in no rush to get in anywhere. I was just going to go sleep in the other airport. So it's not like I was pressed to catch my next flight. So that's what I did. I called an Uber. Like two minutes later, they messaged me on the app and said, hey, sorry, like I can't take this. I need you to cancel. And I said, yeah, no, I'm not going to do that. Feel free to cancel it on your end if you'd like to not take this ride. We went back and forth. He said that he was not able to cancel, which I know is not true. Or even if it is true, why did you accept the ride if you didn't want to take me? But ultimately, what I ended up doing was waiting him out. <laughs> I went to McDonald's and got some food and sat outside. It was a nice sunny day. Just sat outside the airport eating chicken nuggets and waiting for him to cancel, which eventually he did. It took him like 45 minutes, but eventually he did cancel. So if you're in Argentina and you come across that problem, obviously if you're on a time crunch, it won't really work for you, but it did work for me. I was able to call an Uber the second time around and everything went off without a hitch. By without a hitch, I mean that he showed up in a car that was not the car on the Uber and definitely not the right license plate. And I trusted him and got in the car anyway, and he did take me where I needed to go. So if that counts as going off without a hitch, then it did. But then once at the other airport, you fly from Buenos Aires down to the very bottom of Argentina to Ushuaia, 
up. I landed there, obviously very, very jet lagged, realized I had not taken out any cash at all. And for whatever reason, the single ATM at the tiny Ushuaia airport was not working, at least not for me. So I had no cash to pay a taxi and I was looking and the walk into town was maybe three or four miles. And I had a giant backpack because not only was I going to Antarctica, so I had all of my warm Antarctica clothes. I was also going on a backpacking trip right after in Patagonia, which I will talk more about next week. So I had a full pack and also my camera gear with me. So a full pack on my back and then like another backpack that I was wearing on my front. So that three mile walk normally would probably take me about an hour and a half if I didn't have anything with me, but it was probably gonna take me three or four hours if I had to do it and it was hot. It was so hot that day. But luckily I got into a cab with someone. There were actually three American tourists right near me waiting in the taxi line and I just said, hey guys, like I don't have any cash. Do you guys have Venmo? Can we just split this cab and I'll Venmo you for it. And they were like, yeah, totally. No problem. Completely trusted me, which was great because I didn't really want to walk three miles into town. And so I finally got to my hostel in Ushuaia and was like prepped and ready to go. This was a Monday evening and our boat was leaving on a Wednesday. So pretty much I was going to have all day Tuesday to explore and do fun things. We were having a big welcome dinner with everyone who was going to be on the boat that we knew of from the Facebook group that I mentioned, Girls Love Travel. So it was going to be a really fun like day and a half leading up to getting on the boat. So that Monday night, I kind of settled into my hostel and some girls that I was rooming with on the boat and as well as a couple other girls started a group message and they're like, hey, we're going to dinner at this time at this place. Like, come on, like anybody who wants to come. And I think only like four of us were there. I do remember very clearly that my friend Lavi was there because I ended up rooming with her and I've actually visited her in Oslo now. So I know that she was there because that was the first time I got to meet her in real life. So we go out to eat at this seafood restaurant. I don't know who chose it, honestly. I was just along for the ride. And I got calamari, which I was pretty excited about. And everyone else got crab. I don't know why. Maybe it was like their special or something. But literally everyone else at the table ordered the exact same meal. And I ordered something different. So then I go back to the hostel and I start getting ready for bed. I am kind of feeling like a little uneasy, but you know, not too much to be concerned about. I lay down to go to bed and immediately have to puke. I'm on the top bunk of a hostel bed and there are seven other people in this room. So I jump off the top bunk. Yes, jump not climb, (laughs) and sprint down the hallway to the bathroom and start getting sick. It was really great. I think that maybe I'm just tired. You know, I've been traveling a lot and maybe I've just kind of exhausted myself and I go back to bed. I cannot sleep at all because my stomach hurts and is like cramping so bad. And obviously at this point, I'm starting to realize like I have food poisoning. So I spend the entire evening jumping off the top bunk to go throw up and then coming back to my bed to try and get a little bit of sleep, which does happen at all. My poor bunk mate, I do not know her name, but she stayed under there and did not say a word, but I know that she had to know it was happening because multiple times I jumped off and I did not think I could make it all the way down the hall to the bathroom. So I would throw up in the trash can in the room. And so I know pretty much everyone in there had to know what was going on, but no one said anything. Everyone was really kind. The man downstairs who was working the table, because after I threw up in the trash can, I would unload the trash can and take it downstairs 
upstairs. I'm not just gonna leave it in the room, smelling up the room. <laughs> this is so gross. Why am I sharing this? But I would empty the trash can and take it downstairs. And at one point or another, after this had happened four or five times, I got to know the guy working the front desk that night. And he was so kind to me. And at one point he gave me a Gatorade and he was just like always checking in and making sure that I was doing all right. I wasn't, but it wasn't his fault. He couldn't have done anything to fix it at that point. But I made it through the night and I think I woke up at like 5.30, 6 in the morning and there were two people who had left to catch an early bus. I remember them talking about it the day before. And so I stole one of their bottom bunks because I was so exhausted of jumping off the top bunk. So then I'm on the bottom bunk sleeping away and someone comes in and kind of like half wakes me up and is like, hey, are you doing okay? Like I heard that you were getting sick. Like, is there anything that I can do? And I realize that this person has an accent, but I am feverish and exhausted and I mean, not dying, but like as close to dying as you can get without dying. <laughs> and so all I realize is that there is an accent and that this person is not from America. Like I couldn't have even identified if they were from Canada. I was that out of it, but I just realized, you know, they speak differently than I do. And so I just start speaking in Spanish, <laughs> but like very broken Spanish because I'm not fluent. So I'm like, agua con agua um <laughs> just trying to get across that I would like some water with bubbles some bubble water you know like soda water and so eventually she's like I don't speak Spanish and I'm like oh well uh bubble water would you mind getting me some bubble water and she was like okay and she leaves come to find out I meet this girl she's on my boat and she's Irish, which explains why I immediately identified, okay, this person speaking with an accent, though an Irish accent sounds a lot different than a Spanish accent. So <laughs> I wasn't really that close. She leaves the room thinking, okay, this American wants bubble water. What does that mean? <laughs> like, do all Americans call soda water bubble water? And to answer her question, which we've joked about this a lot, but the answer is just I do. I don't really know that many other people who call it bubble water. I think that at one point I nannied some kids who called it bubble water and in my mind it just makes sense. It is water with bubbles. So it's just kind of stuck in my head and I can't help but call it that. <laughs> So obviously, if you can't piece it together by now, that Tuesday that I was supposed to have to kind of explore Ushuaia and get ready to get on the boat on that following Wednesday was kind of spent just being miserable and <laughs> trying not to throw up and trying to find crackers. <laughs> but I did survive and that Wednesday I did get on the boat. So I remember very vividly walking through customs to technically leave the country of Argentina to go get on this boat that would take us to Antarctica and immediately all of the emotions that a person can feel at one particular moment came rushing over me. Like I wanted to laugh. I wanted to cry. I wanted to like curl up into a ball on the floor. I wanted to like sprint around with my arms in the air. I felt everything that I had ever felt in those few moments walking from customs to get on the boat. It just felt so surreal. It felt like something that you don't get to do in real life. It felt like a movie or like something that you'd be reading in a book, but definitely not something I would be doing in my real life. 
So it definitely took me a minute to kind of gather myself to continue walking and be able to get on the boat. I opted to share my room with three other women while on this 14 day, 13 day journey down to Antarctica. So once I got there, I don't even remember if any of my roommates were there, but we slowly got to know each other and they are some of the coolest women I think I've ever known in my entire life. And I still keep up with them, probably not as much as I should and definitely not as much as I did in the few months right after the trip, but they seriously are such strong, accomplished, hardworking women, and I love being their friend. I don't even feel worthy of being their friends, if I'm being honest, but we would definitely get a lot of quality time to spend together over the course of the next couple of weeks, because there are about 125 people on this boat total. So there were women from this particular Girls Love Travel group, and then there was also a middle school field trip. I shit you not. It was from like a private school in Switzerland. This was their cultural field trip of the year. How do I get that job? Like, I want to be that teacher who gets to accompany all of these bratty middle schoolers to Antarctica and get paid to do it. Like, that's what I want. <laughs> so once the boat started to go, we're heading down south through the Drake Passage. If you know anything about the Drake Passage, it's probably that it's notoriously horrible. It has some of the roughest seas in the entire world, and I think it used to be called, like, Shipwreck Alley. I may not be entirely correct on that. I have not fact-checked this at all. I do know that there were a ton of shipwrecks that happen there because it can go from like perfectly calm to super stormy with like no thought at all. Everything that's kind of meeting between the Atlantic and the Pacific is happening right there. And so it's really tumultuous. All we heard the entire time prepping for Antarctica was that the Drake Passage is going to kick your ass. Like it's going to be horrible. You're going to be miserable. You're going to be sick. You might be confined to your room because it may not be safe enough to walk around. It's going to be choppy seas. It's going to be horrible. <laughs> so I am... How do I put this? I am not good at preparing for reasonable things. So when someone told me that I should be taking nausea medicine with me or seasickness patches or other things like that to prepare myself, I'm pretty sure my response was, no, 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 I don't get seasick. And what I mean by that is I've never gotten seasick before because I've been on cruises and small ships with not very many waves or a storm or anything like that. And even the one storm that I do remember going through on a cruise ship, it was actually like the side of a hurricane. And so I thought, no, 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 I've been through it all. Like this boat, the cruise ship years ago was moving a lot. It was tilting a lot. Things were falling off tables. Like that's pretty dramatic. I lived through that, didn't get seasick at all. So I will be absolutely fine. There's no need to take any nausea pills or anything else like that with me because I'm set. Let me just say from the bottom of my heart that I don't think I've ever been more wrong about anything in my entire life. Listen here right now, if this is the only thing that you hear and you you're planning on going to Antarctica at any point in your life, do not, do not think that you can make it through the Drake Passage without any kind of seasickness medication. I'm not even saying that I'm an expert on this. I am just saying that I lived through it and the Drake Passage on the way down to Antarctica, the entire crew was talking about how easy it was, how this was the calmest they had ever seen the Drake Passage, that this was like a day at Disneyland compared to some of the 
stormy seas that they had seen in the past. So you can imagine that my ego took a little bit of a hit when I started getting sick, which I think was on like day one because I had just gotten over food poisoning. So my stomach was already mad and then moving around just really didn't help. And honestly, I can't identify why I got so much more sick on this trip, on this boat trip than I have on any other boat in my entire life. But the only thing that I can think about is the fact that the Drake Passage is just horrible. If I ever go back to Antarctica, that will be the hardest part for me to get over. Not the $10,000 price tag, but the two days each way that you have to spend on the Drake because it is absolutely miserable. We talked a lot about this on the way down that like there's a steep price tag to get to Antarctica. And that price tag comes in so many different forms. Obviously, monetarily, that price tag is pretty obvious. But the other price tag is the nausea and horrible venture through the Drake Passage. Like you have to pay with your body. That sounds horrible, but it's true. You have to really mean it to get down there. You're not going to stumble down there accidentally. You have to really work for it. But all that said, spending around 70 hours on the Drake Passage was really fun in some ways because we did have a ton of scientists on board and they would give us lectures every single day. I say give us lectures. What I mean is they would offer us lectures. So essentially classes on different kinds of birds or different kinds of mammals that we were going to see once we got to Antarctica. Or we learned about the entire ecosystem under underneath like shelf ice. We learned a lot about icebergs and the ecosystems that they might have underneath them. We learned about the different kinds of experiences that they've had in Antarctica because almost all of them I think had wintered in Antarctica. So wintering in Antarctica is no joke at all because as you can probably imagine, it is absolutely dark. <laughs> I think they might get like a little sliver of sunlight at some point during the day, but it's not much and it does not last long. But overall, it is dark and stormy and freezing, freezing, freezing cold. So listening to them talk about what they would do in the winters in Antarctica was super intriguing because they have this whole society down there where they do different talent shows and have gardens and a, an entire greenhouse and all kinds of things that you would find in like a a normal neighborhood, but it wasn't a normal neighborhood. It was Antarctica. <laughs> so other than the Drake being absolutely horrible to me on the way down, we did start to see icebergs. And I remember the very first time that we saw one, it was way out in the distance. And honestly, it looked kind of small. I mean, it was so far away that it was hard to tell how big it was. And I think they announced over the intercom or something, or maybe it was in one of the lectures, but they let us know how big that iceberg that we could see actually was. And it was the size of like a skyscraper. It was giant. It wasn't like this tiny little size of a Vita bug iceberg. No, it was giant. But we spent our days kind of mentally preparing to be in Antarctica as well as learning about some of the ecosystems and things happening there. So that way we can make as little disruption as possible when we are there, which is something that I think draws a lot of people to Antarctica is that feeling of being in a space that is so untouched by humans. It's definitely not entirely untouched. We were able to see some buildings and some other kinds of settlements and things like that. But overall, just such an untouched space and I think that a lot of people are drawn to that. So that's what I'm sharing with you today. More about kind of how the process starts. I know this is kind of a cliffhanger of like, okay, down to the Drake Passage, starting to see icebergs. What's going to happen next? I will be sharing ultimately probably three or four episodes on Antarctica. I'm hoping that I'm going to be able to bring on guests to speak about it because we all had very different experiences overall.
overall. We all were there on this at the same time, on the same boat, but we all bring in a different worldview and a different set of eyes to kind of see things and notice things. And we weren't with each other 24-7. So definitely going to do my best to bring on some guests to speak about their experiences there as well. In the meantime, I am preparing to launch my next episode next week, which will be about my December trips, one of which will be Patagonia, which happened immediately after Antarctica. The others include going down to Disneyland, which obviously is not super adventurous or exciting, but it was my very first trip with my boyfriend, as well as Paris and Venice, and our latest trip, which was to Thailand in this past December in 2019. So get ready for that next week. In the meantime, if you have any questions about Antarctica or something that I experienced or something that you'd like to hear me talk about on my next Antarctica podcast, or as a matter of fact, any of my podcasts, I would love to get some feedback. Please hop on over to our website, which is tipsytraveler.gh photoco.com and just leave us a little message about what you'd like to hear, um, if you're enjoying it, if you're hating it, maybe not if you're hating it. (laughs) But I would love any kind of feedback or any kind of suggestions that you might have. I love talking about travel. I would love to hear your travel stories. So feel free to reach out at any point. 